Well, most of you know at the City Church, we preach through the scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we do that not just in here, but in our kids' classes, in our youth ministry, so that we're all studying the exact same thing. And I've found, I've, I've cast vision for this most weeks when I'm preaching, right? A lot of you, if you're here every week, you could probably say some of the things I say about preaching verse by verse because I say it so much to remind us of the why that we, we, we do this. But here's what I found. There's one drawback. Now, I know you're probably shocked because as, as much as I promote preaching scripture verse by verse, I've actually found a drawback. You see, when you teach your kids the scripture verse by verse and they're learning the Bible, they actually can begin to use the scripture against you. Like in an argument, they can start to use it against you and it kind of can stump you sometimes. You gotta really know what you're talking about. You gotta really know how to handle the word of God because your kids will start to use it against you. A year and a half ago, our church studied through the book of Colossians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Our kids did the exact same study. Well, about six months ago and ever since, Coben has been quoting to me from Colossians chapter three. Anytime I upset him or annoy him or say something I don't like, he doesn't like, he, he, he will say this, dad, you're aggravating me. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter three, you're not supposed to aggravate me. I'm like, I don't think that means what you think it means, okay? So let's look up some other translations of what that, that verse says. And, and let's look at Ephesians chapter six, which talks about kind of the same exact thing. Let's get some context here. And what he found, was it in Ephesians chapter six in the NIV, it says, don't exasperate your kids. So now my son Coben almost once a day tells me that I'm exasperating him. And I'm like, son, that doesn't mean what you think it means. And he's like, you're, you're exasperating me, dad. And I'm like, well, you're not honoring me. And he says, well, you're exasperating me. And it's this crazy cycle we've got going on right now with my 13 year old son. Apparently I exasperate my child, my children, every single day. So I clearly have a long way to go as a dad. And I think we all do. But you know what? I, I think we all, dads, I think we all at least want to be good dads, right? And if you're not a dad yet, maybe you're not even a husband yet, but you want to be, my guess is you, you, you would think to yourself, like, I would like to be a good husband one day, if, I, if I'm gonna have that, that, that blessing. And, and I, would, I, would, I would like to be a, a good dad one day. Like I would, I would like for that to be true about me. I think at least we all want to be good dads. But there's a difference between being a good dad and a godly dad. There's a big difference between being a good dad and being a godly dad. And here's what I'm going to submit to you today. You can't be a good dad unless you're a godly dad first. I'm going to say that again. You can't be, this is what I think the Bible teaches and you're going to see it today. You can't be a good dad unless you're a godly dad first. So I want to show you two things today from Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 6 that will make a godly father that is worthy of honor. So if you got your Bible, turn with me. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be at the end of 5 and the beginning of Six And the verses will be on the screen, but here's what I want to challenge you to do, especially men in the room, husbands, dads, get out our app. It's called the City Church Lubbock. You can download it in your app store. 
Go to message notes and follow along with us. Obviously, that's for everyone, but today, specifically dads, I'm challenging you, kind of like, think about it like a coach in your face, right? Get out the app, lean in, engage, and make the most of our time together. Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians chapter six. Two things from the scripture that I believe makes a godly father that is worthy of honor. Not just a good father, but a godly father who's worthy of honor. Number one, here's the first thing. A godly father is first a godly husband. Listen, you can't be a godly father if you aren't first a godly husband. Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 25. Follow along with me. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she, the church, the the bride of Christ, will be holy and without fault. So let's stop there for a second. Paul says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. So what kind of love is that? Well, Paul defines it. Christ loved the church by giving himself up for it, by laying his life down for her. This is a self-sacrificing kind of love. It's a sacrificing, just like Christ did, of your well-being for her well-being. It's a sacrificing of your comfort for her comfort. It's a sacrificing of your priorities for her priorities. It's, it's understanding and realizing, like we, like we see here in, in 26 and 27, where Christ dies for the church in order, what does it say? To make her holy, clean, to wash her, to cleanse her, to present her to himself as this glorious church bride without spot, wrinkle, or any other blemish. She'll be holy and without fault. So, so, so this is a self-sacrificing kind of love that is for her best interest and for her flourishing. So, so godly husbands are after their wives' flourishing. They're after their wife. They're, they're going, they're pursuing their wife's best interest before their own. And you might be thinking, what about me? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's not about you. It's not about you. Jesus said of his self-sacrificing love for the church, he said this, I I came to serve and not to be served and to give up my life as a ransom. I came to serve, not to be served. That's the self-sacrificial, unselfish love of Christ. And Paul says, in the same way that Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her, he came to serve her and not to be served by her. In that exact same way, you're going to give up your life for your wife. You are the lead servant in your marriage and in your home. You're the lead servant. And those that would pound their chest and say, but I'm the leader of the family, I'm in charge, are totally missing. 
Because Paul says you love your wife like Christ loved it. You give up your life. You are the lead servant. In the same way Christ came to serve and not to be served. That's the attitude of the godly husband. Let's keep going. Verse 28. In the same way, Paul says husbands ought to love their own wives as they love their own bodies. And so what does that look like? How, How do you do that? For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but watch this. He feeds for it. And he cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. So so Paul says a godly husband is going to provide. He's going to provide. He's going to work hard to make sure that needs are being met. Maybe some wants, right? Maybe not all the wants. Maybe some wants. But we're working hard to provide needs and to make sure needs are being met and that everyone in the house, especially our wives, feel safe. We work hard to provide. But, but it's not just providing physical needs. Paul says that Christ cares, he provides for the church, but he cares for the church. And in that same way, husbands are not just to provide physical needs, but to Care. There's a tender care here that is about making sure your wife is flourishing mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It's like you're the lead gardener in your home as well. You're the lead servant. You're the lead gardener, making sure that your wife, your kids are growing and thriving. Needs are being met. Wife is thriving mentally, emotionally, spiritually. There's a tender care here. In fact, Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, husbands, if you treat your wife harshly like with a mean spirit, it will hinder your prayers. Peter warns husbands, like husbands, if you're not treating your wife right, it's hurting your relationship with God. It's stunting your relationship with God and God will not hear your prayers. If you have a mean spirit or you treat your wife harshly, no, a godly husband has tender care for his wife. Verse 31, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Every time I do a wedding, I I dive into this word united. And what the the Hebrew is, because Paul's quoting from Genesis, what what the Hebrew uh, of this word really means, because it's so deep and it's so meaningful. The, The Hebrew for this word united means to join together, to cling to one another, to stick to each other like glue, to stay close to one another. It implies an ongoing, continuing relationship, and it carries the idea of allegiance and pursuit. So, When you're united together, it's not just something that happens at the ceremony. That's just where it begins. United, being united together as one is this ongoing, continuing relationship and pursuit. When you read through the book Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, you will blush at what you read. There's no question. If you read through that word for word, verse by verse, you're going to start thinking to yourself, is that saying what I think it's saying? And listen, almost every time the answer is yes. It's saying what you think it's saying, all right? It is extremely erotic in nature. However, what you're going to see 
throughout the book of Song of Solomon is a man and woman pursuing each other in this relationship. And not only is it erotic, it's this story of two people pursuing each other in many different ways. So so in Song of Solomon, you're going to see this man pursue his wife, love his wife by serving her through words of affirmation, through time, through touch, both sexual and non-sexual. Now, I know men don't know what that word means. I had to look it up myself this week. Like, that's a difficult one, I think, for a lot of us. Like, we don't, we don't, we don't understand that. And so here, here's what I learned this week, and I'm just going to share it with you. Non-sexual touching. Here's what it means. It means non-sexual. I know, it's crazy, right? Non-sexual touching. That's what it means. Blows my mind too. I know, I know guys, I, I know it's, it's hard. It's a hard one for us to grasp, all right? But, but this man pursues his wife in all of these different ways because being united as one implies an ongoing, continuing relationship and daily pursuit of one another. I read this week, one commentator, he said this. To summarize, the, the Christian husband, the godly father, he said this, the Christian husband displays what he thinks of Christ by the way he treats his wife. Like you can say all day long that you love Jesus, that you worship Jesus. It's a bunch of lies if it's not reflected in how you treat your wife. You can claim something all day long. It doesn't make it true. The Christian husband, the godly husband displays what he thinks of Christ by the way he treats his wife. A godly father is first a godly husband. But secondly, a godly father, watch this, prioritizes his heavenly father for himself and for his family. A godly father prioritizes his heavenly father. Let's keep going into Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 4. It says this, so fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. So, so this kind of helps us understand what Coben was getting at, right? Don't, don't exasperate me. Don't aggravate me. What, what does that mean? Well, Paul says here in Ephesians 6 verse 4 in the NLT, don't provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. So this, this kind of helps us understand what, what, what's happening here. He's talking about not having a mean or a harsh spirit. Now, this doesn't mean, dads, that you skip out on the discipline and the correction in the home. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about having a mean or critical or harsh spirit towards your kids. So if you aren't a source of life, fun, joy, comfort, safety, in addition to discipline and correction, if you aren't a source of that life and fun and joy and comfort and safety in your home, then your wife and your kids will rebel against your leadership and you will be seen as a hypocrite in their eyes. And you will undermine your number one role as a dad. And for that, we got to keep reading. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Watch. Rather... Number one, number one priority. Number one calling as a dad. Rather, bring them, your kids, up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. 
So there's a, a, a discipline and instruction, a, a, a training here that's not discipline and instruction in sports or discipline and instruction that they get from school. This is a different kind of discipline and instruction because Paul says it comes from the Lord. So there's a discipline and an instruction that comes from the Lord. There's a spiritual training, if you will, that comes from the Lord that Paul says for dads, that is your number one priority, is to make sure your kids are getting this discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So what that means is, and now this is going to blow your mind, there's a discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord that is more important than discipline and instruct training in sports or in education. <laughs> I know, that's nuts, right? Sounds crazy. But Paul says there's a spiritual training that's more important that your kids need than any other training they can get in this life or in this world. And that spiritual training, Paul says, dads, primarily is on you to make sure your kids are getting that spiritual training. Watch this. A godly father knows the difference between what's primary and what's secondary. The, the secondary things aren't bad. They aren't always bad, right? But they're not primary things. A godly father knows the difference between what's primary and what's secondary. And then the godly father prioritizes the primary things in their home. In other words, the godly father prioritizes their kid's spiritual training above any other kind of training they can get in this world or in this life. The godly father prioritizes their family, their kid's spiritual discipleship that comes from the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter six, God has rescued the nation of Israel from slavery to the Egyptians. He's given them the law, the, the 10 commandments, which would be a summary of the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter six, starting in verse four, this is called the Shema. And the Shema was probably the most important passage of scripture that any faithful Jew would have had memorized. And it goes like this, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. In other words, there is no other God but me. You, you might form gods with your hands. Those are no gods at all. They're false gods. There is no God but me. We, we are monotheists, which means we believe that there is one God. God says, I am the Lord, your God. There, there is no other God. Verse five. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. Verse six. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. So God tells the nation of Israel, hey, here's what's primary. You gotta know the difference. Godly Father knows the difference between what's primary and what's secondary. God's telling his people, here's what's primary. You want to know what's primary? Here's what's primary. Love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and commit yourselves wholeheartedly to obeying my commands. That's primary. 
Everything else is secondary. Here's what's primary. Love me and obey me. That's what's primary. But then watch this. It doesn't stop there. Verse 7. Repeat them. Repeat these commands. Repeat the word of the Lord again and again to your who? Children. Repeat these commands over and over and over again with your children. Watch this. Talk about them. Here's what God says to, to, to Israel through, through Moses. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your foreheads as reminder. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, here's what God is saying. Saturate your home with the word of God. And you're going, and you're coming, and when you get up, when you go to bed, at mealtime, saturate your home with the love of God, with the worship of God, with the word of God. And like a good parent, because God is our heavenly father, he knows what kids are going to do when parents are disdevoted to the Lord. Here's what God says. Your kids are going to ask why. Isn't that the understatement of the century? <laughs> why? I mean, kids ask that all the time, right? And God actually tells the nation of Israel, hey, if you do this, if you love me and worship me and obey me wholeheartedly, God actually tells the nation of Israel, your kids are going to ask why. One day, they're going to ask why. Look what he says in verse 20. In the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of all of this? <laughs> what is the meaning of all these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? And then you must tell them. So God says, your kids are going to ask why, and here's, your, what, here's what you're going to tell them. You're going to do this because I told you to? No. God says your kids are going to ask why, and then you're going to tell them why. You're going to give them the why, and here's the why. Then you must tell them. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. That's why. Why do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why do we worship the Lord alone? Why do we obey all the commands of the Lord with this wholehearted devotion? Why? And, and, and God says, your kids are going to ask you why, and then here's what you're going to tell them. Because God rescued us from slavery to the Egyptians with his mighty hand. Some translations say, because God rescued us from slavery to the Egyptians with his mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Does that picture sound familiar to anybody else? God rescuing a people from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? Maybe a nail-pierced hand on an outstretched arm? God says, when you make me primary and everything else secondary, your kids are going to ask why. They're going to challenge you. Why? They're, they're not going to jive with your priorities. And they're going to ask why. Maybe, maybe a good indication of kind of 
where your family's at with their priorities is if your kids ever ask why. why. Why are we doing this? And everyone else is doing this, and we're not doing that. We're doing this. Why? Why are we doing this? And the answer is the same, brother, sister. When your kids ask why to this day, our answer is the exact same. Why do we prioritize the Lord our God over and above everything else? Why do we prioritize your spiritual training in the Lord above everything else this world is throwing? Why? Because the Lord our God rescued us from slavery to sin and death and hell forever with an outstretched arm and with a nail-pierced hand. That's why. That's why we are so devoted to the Lord our God. That is why. It's by definition, God is saying that when you make him primary and all these other things secondary, your kids will ask why. Why, why are these things what is primary and, and, and these things that everyone else has made primary are, are secondary to us? If I could put it in very practical terms, dad, dads, your job is to say it's bigger than baseball. I put baseball because my baseball's a fam- my, we're baseball family through and through. We all, kids play all kinds of other of other sports, but baseball kind of rules our world from January through December. We're, we're a baseball family. You can fill in the blank with whatever it is, but, but our job is to say it's bigger than baseball. So when we're at baseball, we're, we're not just concerned about how they're doing in baseball because it's bigger than baseball. And when we're not at baseball, because that's a secondary thing and not a primary thing, we say we're not at baseball and we're here doing this because it's more, it's bigger than baseball. It's bigger than baseball. So, so let me put it like this. Like if your kid being involved in that sport or getting those grades at school ends on itself, meaning it's about them becoming better at that sport or smarter than everyone else, you've missed it. As a Christian parent, you've missed it. Because it's bigger than baseball. It's bigger than football. Bigger than cheer, bigger than gymnastics, bigger than basketball, bigger than golf, bigger than hunt, whatever it is, fill in the blank. The godly father will say, it's bigger than baseball. And so when we're here, our end goal isn't really baseball. It's about worshiping and serving the Lord and being a witness to the people around us. When we're not at baseball, it's because it's bigger than baseball. We've got more important things to be at. Bodie Bauckham, a popular pastor, theologian, author in our country, said this, and I love it because it's about baseball. He says, if I teach my kids to keep their eye on the ball and not on Jesus, I failed. A godly father prioritizes his relationship with his heavenly father. He prioritizes his family's relationship with their heavenly father. Because that's what's primary. And listen, when you make the Lord primary, when you make your kids' spiritual training primary, 
They're going to ask why. You're going to give them the reason why, and they're still not going to get it, and they're going to disagree with you. I promise you. If it hadn't happened to you yet, it's going to. But let me ask you, do do my kids always agree with my priorities? (laughs) No. Right? No. They don't always agree with my priorities. But if I left going to church up to them or continuing to go to church up to them, they would have never started going in the first place. And when they did, they probably wouldn't have kept going because they don't get the the long-term effects. All they can see is the immediate impact like on their life in that moment. And, And so they don't get or even agree sometimes with with my priorities. My son Levi, 16, he went on a mission trip to southern Mexico this past week down on the border of Guatemala. And I asked him when he got back, I said, hey, um, we had dinner last night. They had just gotten back. I said, hey, how how was the trip? He said, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I said, are you glad you went? Huge smile on his face. I'm so glad I went. Six months ago when our trip was, church was putting this trip together, we had a conversation in my car, in our driveway, outside of our house, and said, Levi, this mission trip's coming up. And it's gonna be very difficult. I've gone there 30 times. And it is, it's one of the most difficult trips and weeks of my life every single time I'm there. It's also the most rewarding. We're sitting in the car and I said, Levi, this trip's coming up. Here's what it is. He, he knows because I've been going there so many years. He, he, he knows Greg's been here who leads this ministry. He stayed with us. He's preached here at our church. Uh, Greg considers my kids like, like, like he's their uncle. He calls himself Uncle Greg. That's kind of how they, they know him. He's been like a spiritual dad to me. And, and so I'm, I'm telling Levi about this trip and what it's like and how difficult it's going to be. And I, I said, hey, um, I want you to go. And he's like, man, you know, he's 16. He didn't, he didn't get it. And, um, and we're talking about it, you know, and he knows what he's going to miss and at the end of the conversation, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're like agreeing to go because you're, you're going. I'm not joking. It wasn't a choice. He didn't have a choice. He was going. I, I can't expect him. He's 16. How could I possibly expect him to understand and to fully grasp my priorities. And God, dads, moms, parents, God has given you the responsibility to set the priorities in your home, not your kids. They they don't get a say. God has given you the responsibility to set the right priorities in your home your home. It's the parents in the nation of Israel that say, as for me and my house, we are serving the Lord. 
It's not the kids saying that. It's a parent, that says, it's a dad, it's a godly father that says, as for me and my house, we are serving the Lord. God has tasked you to set the priorities in your home, not your kids. They don't even get to set the priorities for their own lives until they're long gone and you're not paying for anything anymore. There's this progression in the book of Colossians, in the book of Ephesians. And, and that progression goes like this. Theology about Jesus, who is Jesus? Our identity in Christ, that we are forgiven and redeemed and, and, and made righteous. We don't earn a righteous standing, but that we're made righteous. We're, we've been washed clean, made spotless. So, so our identity in Christ, and then it starts talking about who the church is and what the church is and what the church does. And then you and I in relationship in this community of faith. And then it progresses to marriage. And then it progresses to teaching on parenting. Do you see the progression there? It's intentional. It's in Colossians and Ephesians. Jesus, our identity in Jesus. Who is the church? What is the church? Our relationship in the church, then marriage, then parenting. There's a progression there. And the progression shows godly priorities. Like, here's what I mean, and this is the big idea today. You can't be a good father unless you're a godly father first. You can't be a good father unless you're a godly father first. Now, here's what I know some of you are thinking because it's my temptation to start thinking this at the exact same time. Here's what some of you are thinking. Here's what some of you are feeling. You're hearing all of this. It's challenging. That's a good thing. It's convicting. That's a good thing. It's hurting your feelings a little bit. Me too. That's a good thing. But here's what's not a good thing. You hear all of this and you respond with, I got to do better and try harder, man. Wrong answer. That is the wrong answer. The answer today to being a godly father is not, I'm going to do better and I'm going to try harder. How many times have you said that? That is not the right answer. See, here's what you've, you've got to understand today. Like, if you're going to become a godly father, here's what you've got to understand. Whatever you're beholding is what you're becoming. Whatever you're beholding, like whatever has your attention, your eyes, your gaze, your awe, your wonder, like whatever has your eyes, whatever you're beholding, is what you're becoming. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter three. And we all with unveiled faces, he's talking about Moses going up on the mountain and then coming back down and they had to veil his face because the glory of God was so powerful on him because he had just been in the presence of God that they had to put a veil over his face because the people were scared of the holiness and the glory of God that was shining off of Moses after having been in the presence of God. And, and Paul's like, now in the new covenant, we, we don't have to worry about that because we have the Holy Spirit of God living in it dwelling inside of us. And so with unveiled face, and we all, it says this, beholding the glory of the Lord, watch this, are being transformed. So 
You're transformed, not as you do better and try harder. You're transformed as you fix your eyes on Jesus. Whatever you're beholding, that's what you're becoming. We're transformed by the Holy Spirit. It says, from one degree of glory to another, one step at a time. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This transformation is not something you can do for yourself. It's something that God has to do in you, in your heart. It's something he has to do for you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. And so that's why do better and try harder isn't going to cut it. It never does, let's be honest. You need God to do something in your heart through his spirit that you cannot do for yourself. And so if you don't like what you're becoming, you gotta change what you're beholding. Don't like the condition of your marriage? You, husbands, you gotta change what you're beholding. You, you don't like the direction of your kids that are headed or your family's headed? You gotta change what you're beholding. You gotta fix your eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of your faith. You are not the author and perfecter of your own faith. Jesus is. And so we fix our gaze, we fix our eyes on him. And Paul says, as you behold the glory of God, in Christ, God does something through the Holy Spirit in you that you can't do for yourself. This is gonna sound so sexist, but it's just true. And almost every study confirms it. That whatever the dad is beholding, the family is becoming. If the dad's beholding money, success, power, sports, education, whatever it is, if that's what the dad is beholding, that's where the family's headed. And remember what we said, those secondary things, they're not necessarily bad things, but when you take something that's secondary and you make it primary, you've got idolatry. And those secondary things, they're never gonna satisfy you and they're never gonna satisfy your kids. And so the godly father knows the difference between what's primary and what's secondary. And the godly father then says, we're gonna make what's primary the priority in our home. We're gonna put our guys on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Paul says, I love it, because this isn't something that can just happen in, in a moment. He says, as we behold Jesus, that transformation comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch this? He said, from one degree of glory to the next degree. It's like one degree at a time. And you know why? Because your heavenly Father is drawing you. Here's what he's after. He's drawing you into a relationship. He wants you to know him. And it's in that relationship, as you behold Jesus, you're transformed. One degree to the next degree. Would you pray with me?
just heads bowed, eyes closed, just all over the room, just kind of a moment between you and the Father, just, you, you gotta know something, like today, you, you can't be a godly father, you can't be a good father unless you've first been born again as a child, as a child of God. So many people are thinking, if I could just be a good enough person, then I can be right with God and go to heaven when I die. And the Bible says salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin. You're made right with God. You're born again and you become a child of God when you give your life to Jesus, believing that he died on that cross for you to pay your fine for sin. And three days later, he rose from the grave. Paul says it like this in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord of your life and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, conquering your sin and conquering death itself, you will be saved. Not because of what you've done. You can't ever do better and try harder your way into the kingdom of God. But because of what Jesus has done for you. And so the Christian says, I'm abandoning all hope in my works and my effort and my doing better and my trying harder. I'm abandoning all my hope in myself and I'm placing all my hope in what Jesus has accomplished for me. And today you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus. You're not a child of God. The Bible says you're actually an enemy of God because you've sinned against God. You've rebelled against God. You're a lawbreaker. You're an enemy of God who will pay the fine for your sin one day eternity separated from God in a place called hell. But God loves you. And he wants you to know him. And if you give your life to his son, Jesus, your sin's forgiven, you're made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. If that's you and you wanna give your life to Jesus today, jump on our app, fill out that form and check that box that says, I'm committing my life to Jesus today. And we'll follow up with you from there. If you're here this morning and you feel like God's speaking to you and saying, hey, I, I, I need to fix my gaze on Jesus that I might be transformed into a godly father. If that's you and you're like, man, I'm, I'm tired of doing better. I'm tired of trying harder. That's not cutting it. I need God to do something miraculous in my, if, if that's you, would you just put your hand up in the air just in humility and as a confession, my hand's up in the air too. Just throw your hand up, keep it up. I just wanna pray for those of you that are saying, man, I feel like God's speaking to me today about fixing my eyes on Jesus, beholding him, that he might transform me this morning. God, we thank you for every man in the room, for those who've, who've got their hands up. And I, I just pray that you would see that act of humility, that act of confession on their part by saying, I, God, I need you to do something in me that I can't do for myself. And that God, your, your spirit, as their eyes are on Jesus right now in this moment, that your spirit would come and begin to transform hearts and minds, maybe just one degree of glory this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Let's worship our King Jesus.